Well, good morning, Alice Drive. That's a good one. My name is Delmar Peake. I'm the campus pastor at Pacella, and it is my honor to join y'all for the second week in a row. You may or may have not uh, seen the memo, but our pastor, Clay, his number was pulled for COVID. So uh, he is on the recovery side of things. We actually had a little Zoom call with him this Thursday. He is itching to get back here. So uh, I'll make sure I send him our love. But before we get started today, y'all might if we get praying? Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, just the opportunity to come here and worship. And God, just to proclaim who you are, how your wounds have paid for our ransom. God, I pray that be the truth that we all would hold on to every day. God, in these next few minutes, as we elevate your word, I pray that your truth would be lifted up. God, the things that said of me would fade into the background and just be forgotten. But God, your truth would change us. We do pray for Pastor Clay that you will continue to heal him, get us back, get him back here, in the saddle real soon with us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is what I know. I know about three or four days ago, a lot of you pulled out your phone and you opened the weather app and you saw that snowflake on there, right? And you had one of probably two polarizing opinions, right? Some of you in here, you see the snowflake and you're like, yes, bring me the snow. Just own it. If that's you, let me know today. Where are you at? Where are my snow folks? All right, yeah. Then we also have some of you, bless your heart, right? The app opens up Snowflake, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I hope in no snow. I moved to South Carolina to get away from snow. Don't let it come. If that's you, raise your hand. Just own it. Own that sass. That's right, okay? All right, you know what? That's true, and it's okay. It doesn't matter where you land on the snow thing. We got it, and it was gone by the end of the day, so hopefully everybody's happy, right? But you know what it revealed to me very quick? As humans, it is our nature to hope in things, isn't it? Like, we even hope whether or not we're going to get snow or not, right? So I think it's actually really wise this year, as we enter this year, that we are stepping into this year what we're calling a year of hope. Because what we believe is that in Christ, we get so much more than just a, oh, I desire this, or oh, I desire that. But in Christ, we get a hope that looks a lot more like, I'm completely satisfied. That's where we're at. That's why we're in this verse. I just want to read kind of this verse we set out in front of us for the whole year. Because this verse is going to dictate a lot of what we're doing, especially behind, up on this pulpit. So this is Romans fifteen thirteen. It says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a real tall order. Because in hard times, I don't default always go to hope. That's actually why we're in this series called Mindset. We're in this series called Mindset because what we're seeing is that, listen, if there's going to be any semblance of hope in our life, it only comes through us having the right mindset. And we're in Colossians, and Paul has spoke last week about having that mindset of hope really means this. At the end of the day, you are laser focused on Jesus Christ. And when I say laser focused, it's not some ambiguous, oh, I'm thinking about God. It's like, no, there are real tangible things he's placed in our life to give us hope. And last week we saw the three big amazing things. And that is this, for anyone who follows Jesus, there is this moment in your life where scripture says you are brought from spiritual death to life. There's hope in that, isn't there? For those of you who know Jesus, you probably can still recall the very minute that you realized he saved you. How that feel, that hope. But not just the hope that's in your past. There's a hope in your present too. We talked about how even now, Christ is working together to protect you and to guide you and make you more like him. And then ultimately, our greatest hope is this. No matter what season you're in life right now, 
no matter what season you're about to go in, it does not matter in light of eternity because the greatest hope we have is one day we will be with him in the presence of Jesus in glory. Now here's the deal, I could stop right there because that's all we really need, isn't it? Like just me thinking about that in the current landscape of like humanity that makes the hair on my arms stand up. But I would also be doing an injustice of stopping you right there because it's important for us to realize something else. If that's all the benefits of what we would call the gospel, the gospel being that Jesus died for us and that if we have faith in him, we have access to that hope by grace, right? If that's all the benefits, here's something we have to also own, that many times there are negative warnings and negative commands that come out of something being a positive truth. Just by virtue of it being positive, sometimes negative things come with it. And some of you know this. Do we have any people in here who are gardeners? Like you have a garden? Even if it's small, still counts, right? Personally, I love you because oftentimes I get to eat well because of you. Because you have massively too big of gardens for your family, right? So you bring us food. And if you meet someone who loves their garden, it's really interesting, right? Because you'll just be having a conversation like, I got a garden. Man, them zucchinis sure are big. And you're like, all right. And then if they're real excited, they start showing you pictures of their garden, right? Which is cool. Show me all the pictures. Just bring me the Walmart bag later with the zucchini, okay? That's how that works. But, but what, I, what, what I realize is this. Um, one, one old preacher put it this way, talking about a garden, and I think this is so true. He says this, no amount of lecturing on the beauty and the benefits of garden will ever produce that garden. Right? We can talk about it all day long. At the end of the day, the gardener still has to get down and pull the weeds. Right? We still got to get down and pull the weeds because in order to have this positive thing, there are some negative truths with us. The negative and the positive go together. And it's not just with gardening. It's with everything. Like grown men who are husbands and fathers, Most of them I've ever met always wanted to be a good husband and a good father if they're married, right? And the truth is, no man ever really fails at that aspiration. Where men fail is in their application, right? Hey, I want to be a good dad, but I'm unwilling to sacrifice for my family. Or hey, I want to be a good husband, but I'm unwilling to consider my wife more significant than me. Or, hey, I want to have a good family, but at the end of the day, family, yeah, career's coming first. You see that? We have to say there are some things, some principles we need to own in order to have these established good things. This is the same reason right now the gym is starting to thin out, right? It's the exact same reason because when January got here, you were ready to roll, right? Like some of you ladies were like, oh, I got my Pinterest list with all my workouts. We're going to blow it up at the YMCA, Right? And then you go to YMCA and you're like, oh my gosh, if I'm going to be in shape, like that's a lot of sweat. (laughs) And that's a lot of pain. And now you're telling me I can't have pizza anymore. We really have an issue, right? And the gym thins out. But this is something I've known. I've never met someone who was in like pristine health who didn't confront this reality. If you really want to own the benefits of that, there's a level of weeds you got to pull in your own garden. And if we're going to have this conversation about having hope, about having this mindset, laser focused on Christ, we have to get down in the weeds and see what needs pulling in our own garden. And we're going to do that today. We're actually going to return back to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up the thought where Paul ended last week. This is very important because he's just finished saying, listen, 
All of your hope is in Christ. And you should be going, yes. But now there's a question we need to ask ourselves. Well, how's that sustainable? I mean, think about it. The best day of a garden is when? It's the day you plant it, right? Because when you plant it, how does it look? Looks amazing. No one wants to talk about how it looks when you come back in June from that two-week trip to Myrtle Beach, right? And you, oh my gosh, what happened in my garden, right? How does it be sustained? How does that hope get sustained? If it ultimately from Christ, where are we in it? Well, look at this verse, verse five. And it may not be where we thought that it would go, but this is the truth. He says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's an interesting take, right? If you want to have your hopes sustained, something's got to die. You're like, well, that's, that's kind of harsh. And it is. But notice a couple things here. This is very important for us to understand what he's saying. He says, put to death, therefore. Good principle of Bible. You've probably heard this before. Every time you see the word therefore, you need to stop and you ask yourself, what is that word therefore? So put to death, therefore. Therefore what? It's what he just finished saying. It's what we talked about last week. Therefore, since Christ has died, the old man has died with him. The old part of us has been buried with him. And as he has resurrected, we have now a resurrected Holy Spirit empowerment to carry forth the living that God has set before us that would give us the best living he's called us to be. That's what it means. For us to have this big therefore means this. Therefore, now you have the ability. We no longer are in spiritual death. So now that you're no longer in spiritual death, you got to put to death what is earthly in you. Now, this actually flies completely in the face of my, like, Southern Christian upbringing, okay? Like, when you think of super Christians, when you think of, like, super Christian churches, what comes to your mind? I'd say what comes to my mind, when I think of super Christians, I think people who can, like, pull a verse, reference, context, and everything out of thin air and just say it. Like, how do you do that, right? Or I think about people who just feed the needy all day long, who clothe the homeless, like, like do all this stuff. And here's the thing, all that is good and it's wonderful. And Paul is going to address that next week because first he says you got to get into the weeds. See, we can't put the cart before the horse with this one. When we think about super Christians, it's easy for us to go ahead and see the final product. But listen, we don't get there unless we first move into this place. And what he's saying here is this. In order to love the people in our world well, we must first correctly hate the worldliness in us well. Let me say that again. If we're going to love the people in this world well, we have to first hate the worldliness inside of us. Because if not, we put the cart before the horse and everything just starts to fall apart. And look at the language he uses here. This is violent language. He says you should what? Kill it. If you got an old school translation, it says you should mortify it. That's a big word, right? But he, this, he's trying to set up, this is the relationship that a believer should have with sin. Hatred and death toward it, right? Not, oh, well, I know I'm doing bad. I probably need to stop. Hey, I'm going to own it. How many times have I said that? Yeah, I know I got that bad habit. How about let's call it what it is. It's death present in our life. And what he's saying is this, we need to realize that because once we realize that, this is the bigger realization we get. We get the bigger realization that this, our sin in our life, no way ever helps achieve the purposes of God in your life. 
You're never going to get done sinning and God be like, man, I'm glad I got you there. Now I can use you. No. Sin in your life never accomplishes the purposes of God in your life. And when we realize that, what we realize is there's really only one thing I can do with this then, and that is I need to kill it. Because if not, it begins to kill us. You say, what do I mean? Well, think about this. What's the biggest indictment on all of Christians from the world? You already know it. You've heard it a million times. I don't like all those Christians because they're nothing but just a bunch of hypocrites. You can finish the statement. Congratulations, you're right, right? Because listen, our God is perfect. We want to be like him. So when we sin, what does that make us? A hypocrite. But how do we close the gap? Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the sin. We don't just get to say, oh, well, I'm a hypocrite. Come join us. No, 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 no. Paul's saying we should not be content in our hypocrisy. We need to close the gap because what happens is this. When sin's present in our life, the first thing it does is it does. Through our hypocrisy, it kills our reputation. It doesn't just kill our reputation. You introduce it into any relationship you have. You represent anything that is not of God to it. It immediately begins to kill those relationships. It doesn't just kill your relationships. It also kills your intimacy with God. And down and down it goes. Everywhere sin is introduced, Scripture is very clear. The wages of sin is what? Death. Not just hell, but everywhere it's present. And I can't say this any more clearly to you than John Owen, the Puritan reformer, who said this. We need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. 100%. Get rid of the weeds or they're going to take you over. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And like weeds in a garden, where do we need to kill sin? At the root. And we need to kill at the root. You know, my dad, he's a a lawn man here in Sumner for like 25, 30 years. I used to work with him back when I was in high school. I'd cut grass and we'd edge the sidewalks. And every now and then in the crack in the sidewalk, there's a weed growing out. So I'd just take the weed eater and, you know, just cut it, keep on going. Next week we come back and what's back? The weed, right? So finally my dad's like, you, got, you can't do that. You got to squirt it with Roundup, right? Because Roundup gets all the way down there and kills the root. And then when he does that, now I have a lot less work to do. A lot less mess to clean up because the root's been killed. Well, listen, it's very similar. If we want sin to get eradicated our life, we got to quit just dealing with the symptoms. We got to go to the root. And Paul has just told us what the root is. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in who? You. We have to sit in that. The root of that sin is in us. Now, that's not generally where I go to kill my sin, right? Like, I'm really, really good at helping you kill your sin, right? Like, I'm really good at calling out my neighbor's sin, right? I'm really good at looking at the news and calling out all of their sin. That's a really good strategy. Feels good too, right? What doesn't it fix? The root. Hey, I dare say, let's crank it up a notch. It's, yeah, sure, it's not about calling out the evil around you. Listen, killing the root isn't really even about you just stop doing the thing. What's the point in stop doing the thing if you still want to do it? The root's still there. Where does it reside? It resides in me. And what Paul is holding up here is this. You want to get sin out of your life? At the end of the day, it's not about behavior modification. It's about you changing. 
It's about you changing. And change comes from one place. You can search all the scriptures. You can cross-reference it over. You can hit every commentary. If you want to see authentic change in anyone's life, it always only ever comes from a living faith in you. That's where change comes from. It comes from a living faith, meaning I have placed all of my hope in Jesus. I got no exit strategies. I got no B plan. And because of that, he's given me the power of his Holy Spirit. He's changed my desires. And because I have that faith, now faith does what it always does. You know what faith always does? Faith always removes filth. That's just what it does. If it didn't, doesn't do that, it's not faith. Right? See, some of you, you hate snow in here. Bless your heart, okay? But don't judge me when I tell you I hate rain. I hate it. I hate it for two reasons. And both of those reasons live in my backyard because I got two low spots, okay? And I'm trying to grow grass in my backyard right now. But if any of you ever had a spot in your yard that holds water, how well does that do with, with rain? right? What ends up happening is your grass looks up at you and it's like, I'm drowning. And then it just dies, right? And then you got these erosion marks in the side of it. Next thing, your, your yard looks like some nasty part of the Grand Canyon that you don't want, right? So what I did is I did what, what the only thing I could do. If there's water in the yard, I need to get something that's only job is to remove water. So I go to Lowe's and I buy one of those pumps. You know what I'm talking about? I buy two of those pumps. I'm like, huh, water, water, flip. And all of a sudden the water goes, and it starts shooting all the way out to the back of the yard. And I look down at the yard, I'm like, yeah, who's winning now, right? And over the weeks, my yard just starts like breathing again. The grass starts growing. The erosion marks go away. And I promise you this, simply the presence of those pumps influence the very look and nature of my yard. That is what faith is in our life. The very presence of faith, it can't not change us. If I put that pump in the yard and it doesn't suck, suck, suck the water out, the pump is broken. Take it back to Lowe's. If faith is in our life and it's not constantly calling out sin, our faith, something's wrong. It removes filth and it leaves us different. And it's very important that we, we understand how it's doing this. It's doing it in two very specific ways. If you're a note taker, these are very important things. And here it is. The first thing that faith does is it removes the eternal penalty of that sin. This is the first way that faith removes filth. It removes the eternal penalty of the sin. Like we said, the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell. Faith, through the power of the Spirit, removes that. Because what happens is, as your faith is activated, God gives you what's called his righteousness. So eternally, you are pure. But it doesn't just take care of your eternal penalty of sin. Because your faith has given you a new nature— it does something else. And this is the one that we often overlook. And today, this is what this entire passage is about. See, so yes, it removes the eternal penalty of sin, but faith also gives you the ability through Christ to remove the current presence of sin. This is where we live now. If you're in this room and your heart abides in Christ, this is where you're at now. And it's important that we don't miss the order, right? He's saying this, dig in your own garden before you go out into the world. If we get it backwards, things really get messed up. Churches get damaged. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a church and see the enemy at work? 
Come on, some of you have been in those churches, right? Some of you ran from those churches. And sometimes it's very obvious, isn't it? Sometimes the enemy is so present in church because you see backbiting going on. You know, there's people leaving over arguing and there's gossip and slander and malice. There's all these things happening. And I will dare say, yeah, that's the presence of sin. That's the enemy at work. But I want to go ahead and let you know, that's not the best victory Satan will ever get in a church. It's not. Because it's too obvious. Let me tell you the best victory Satan will ever get in church. Here it is. In accordance with this passage, putting the cart before the horse, the best victory will ever happen in a church is you have a church that goes and feeds all of the hungry, clothes all of the poor, is active in every mission home. A church that's on, that, that, that all the congregants forever get along. No one ever argues. You're like, that church sounds amazing. Yeah, and you know what? That's the greatest victory when you can have a church that does that much good while at the same time be filled with people who've never been filled with the gospel of Jesus and are as unrepentant and as unregenerate as the day is long. That is a wicked church. A church that we would bury our sin. A church that would look clean but be filthy. And that's why Paul's saying, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to warn you. I'm trying to love you. Dig in your garden. Dig in your garden. Because faith is going to remove filth. And that's exactly what we see because what Paul's about to do, Paul is about to start naming the filth that faith should be removing. He's about to start calling out sin. Now, I don't know about you. I've sat in those sermons, right? I've sat in those sermons with that preacher who's like, I got 30 minutes and a list of 10 sins. I'm going to town on all of y'all. You sat in those, right? I have. You get beat up by a preacher for 30 minutes for your sin. You walk out, you're like, I'm so discouraged and defeated. But can I, I want to I share this with you. This sin list is not given for our discouragement. Actually, Paul's giving it to us as an encouragement to help us find where God really needs to work in us. So I want to read this to you, and my prayer is that, God, this would come alive inside of all of us as an encouragement, not a discouragement. So go back to verse 5. Look at this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he says it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. I mean, you feel the weight of those? I mean, just go through them. Sexual immorality, the Greek word here is pornea, which you probably can deduce what word comes out of that. But really what he's talking about here is this, any sexual activity outside of marriage at all. It's so interesting. Today we have this conversation. Well, is this sexual ethic permissible? Is this sexual ethic permissible? There's only one standard. Is that sexual ethic taking place in a Christian marriage? That's the only way. Anything outside of that is sin. And here's the deal. He's holding up sexuality as the example here. You can hold up whatever you need to. This is not an exhaustive list of sins. But what he's saying is there is an act of sin that's happening here called sexuality. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes below. This, this is really important that we follow this linear thought. He goes, sexuality, the act of doing this sin. But then he gets under that. He goes, what? Not just sexual impure, um, immorality, but also impurity. So listen, we need to put to death the very impure thoughts that led to those actions. Now he's getting invasive in some places I don't like going, right? 
But he doesn't stop there. He takes it deeper. He goes, and not just your impurity, but your passion. And he's not talking about like passion as in I'm happy about something. He's talking about passion in the sense of like feelings without accountability, right? Like sinful feelings. Because what he's saying is, listen, it's these sinful feelings getting with these sinful thoughts that's producing this sinful act. That's what we got to cut out. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes, because even those feelings and those acts are motivated by something, and that thing is your evil desire. It begins with the base thing. What do you really want? Because that's going to trickle up into what you do. Now, normally, I would think that it would stop here. Yep, we got to figure out and get rid of those desires. Let's, let's do a sermon on desires now. That's not what he does. He tucks one more in there, and this one makes the whole house of cards fall. He says this, and this is not what I would think would be the core thing, but he says covetedness. You're like, why does he throw that in there? Well, think about it. Why do we covet? Why? At the end of the day, what coveting really is is saying, if I have that thing, then I will be satisfied. All covetedness is, is me saying, listen, there is something I can place in my life that will satisfy me. And he's just told us the thing we should be getting our satisfaction is, is Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is, no, there's other things or more of a thing that gives me satisfaction. That's why he goes further and he even further names it. Covetedness is nothing more than polished up idolatry. And idols only exist for one reason, to be what? Worshipped. Now we're getting all the way down to the bottom of the layers. What you do flows from what you worship. And all of our sin, all it really is, is worship issues. All of it. There's some aspect of Christ we're not worshiping well. Because when Christ is the object of our worship, what ends up happening is this. When he's the object of my worship, and that's all I care about, all these things that are in proximity fall away. They just die. They go away when he is my bottom line. I've seen this happen in very practical ways in people's life, right? Um, on the weekends here, I think I shared with y'all like a while back, I go yard sailing with a few men from this church, all right? It's something we do on Saturdays, real early. It's fun. I've seen a lot of you out there. I bought stuff for you, but we go there. We go yard sailing. Now, here's the thing. This is no fault of anyone. I'm just going to state a fact. You can get upset. You can not get upset. But for some reason, Gamecock fans are always offloading their stuff real cheap at yard sales, okay? <laughs> That's just facts, all right? Now, we had a friend who lived in Sumter. He was the biggest Clemson fan you ever met. Like, if Clemson's doing well, I want to hang out with him. If they're not, I'm avoiding him like the plague, okay? But what we would do, we'd go yard sale, and we'd find this Carolina stuff, and, y'all, it's nice stuff. Like, I'd see, like, this framed, embroidered, like, Williams Bryce Stadium. I think it's probably, like, 150 bucks. Yeah, $5 you can have it. Okay, right? Oh, here's this tapestry that was made. It's, like, probably, like, a $75 tapestry, 2 bucks. Okay, I'll take it. We would spend the whole month just buying all this Gamecock stuff, like a ton of it. And then we'd pick one Saturday a month, and we would go to his yard while he was still sleeping, and we would light it up. <laughs> He'd have little Gamecock helmets come from his front porch lit up. He'd have like a tapestry, a welcome mat that said Gamecock Country. And he, he knew who it was, so he'd call us up. He goes, you're going to make people think I'm the biggest trader on the block, man. I'm like, no, what are you talking about? 
wow, when did you change teams, right? And like we would do, this is like a running joke we had. Well, I, the joke finally ended up being on us because one day we're out yard selling, just doing our thing, and all of a sudden we realize there's a yard sale on his street. So we're like, oh, we're going to go yard selling. It was him. He was having a Gamecock-only yard sale. <laughs> Everything must go a dollar. Oh, you want 25 cents? You can have it. And I remember going to him, was like, you know you can probably get like 30 bucks for that. He goes, uh-uh, that ain't my team. I was like, facts. And it hit me as I was in this scripture. You can have the most impressive piece of Gamecock memorabilia in the Tri-County area, but if that's not your team, it has zero value to you. And that is the same way sin should be in our life. Hey, that's not my team. Not only does it not have value, I see it as a destructive thing in my life. I want to offload it. It's not even worthy to take the goodwill. It's going right through the landfill. Okay? That should be our relationship with it. Like we have a different desire because we're not on the team of the old self anymore. We're on the resurrected team of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying, when you're a new creation, your desires change. Your covetousness, your worship is enhanced, right? which is a good thing because of what he's about to say. Because all of those earthly things, those sinful things, they're going to be dealt with. Look at verse 6. On the account of these, these earthly things from our old self, right? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once to walk when you were living in them. What is he saying here? He's saying this. Every single sin Every single violation of God's goodness that ever takes place, 100% of them will meet the wrath of God. He cannot and will not look over any wrongdoing. And the reason is completely based upon his goodness. His goodness is why he can't overlook it. Maybe like if I told you, hey, I want to cook you breakfast. Come over to my house sometime. Breakfast with my wife and kids. So you come over to the house, and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm going to make you a three-egg omelet. You're like, a three-egg omelet? Yeah. And I start pulling like three different types of cheese. You're like, I'm on board. I've even got bacon to put in your omelet. It's awesome, right? So I crack two eggs, I mix them together, and I realize I don't have a third egg. Oh, my goodness. But then I do remember, I think one of my boys was play, snuck one out of the kitchen the other night and put it in the backyard about three weeks ago. It's on the porch, all right? So I was like, they'll never know. I go out there, get the egg, bring it in the house. Listen, it cracks just like a normal egg, right? Crack, crunk, crack the egg. Now, I, I've just poured the most putrid pile of egg mess in your plate you ever smelled, right? And I start spooning up. There we go, right? And I make your omelet, right? And I make you a full omelet, mozzarella cheese, goat cheese, Swiss cheese, cheddar cheese. It's awesome, okay? I bring it out to you and set that plate down in front of you. It never touches your lips. Why? Because it can't get past the smell test. If your nose works halfway good at all, you can't overlook the rottenness that is in that omelet. Listen, how much more so can our perfectly good Father in heaven not overlook the rottenness in us? It doesn't matter how many types of delicate cheeses we got. He can't overlook it. He can't. And that's why it has to meet his wrath. 
And that is the sole and complete purpose of Christ on this earth. He came to this earth because he knew that we as humans in our fallenness were in the wrath path of a righteous God who rightly so has no place to put us but um, to punishment, just like we would throw that omelet in the trash. But instead, he went to the cross and died on the cross at our hands, be it no less, so that by us having faith in him, our sin in that moment meets the wrath of God on the cross. If you're here today and you have faith in Jesus, your sin has met its wrath on the cross. And really the big question that we all have to answer is this, where does our sin meet its wrath? Does it meet its wrath in the past, 2,000 years ago, Calvary, or is it going to meet its wrath in our future for eternity? That's the real thing we have to look at. And you know, one time I heard this pastor, he was preaching through this passage with his congregation. And afterwards, one of his guys came up to him and said, hey, listen, okay, I heard what you said about all sin and everything. He goes, but Jesus died for my sin. Like, I'm going to heaven. My sin's different than the other people in the world's sin. And you know what? The pastor looked at him. He goes, you know what? You're right. You know what your God had to do to deliver you from that sin. And yet you kept doing it. Your sin is worse, dear Christian. Your sin is worse. And that's the very problem that I face even in my own life. It's like, if you can hold up that first list and be like, sexual morality is a sin. I'm like, yeah, I'll sign off on that, right? But let me ask you, how many other things in our life do we permit to just happen over here while we're focusing on this and we're letting sin slide? And that's exactly why Paul continues in this passage here. He says, listen, yes, you got to get down to why you sin. It's a worship issue. But it's not just enough that you kill your sin or it be killing you. It's the completeness of it. You need to kill all of your sin, which is difficult because that means we're going to have to reexamine our life. Look at verse 8 here. It says this, now you must put them all away. Anger, which is unjust anger. Wrath which is nothing but simply acting on your anger. Malice is acting on your anger with the desire to bring harm to somebody. It's slander, which is speaking ill about somebody, be it true or negative, for the sole purpose of hurting their character, right? A lot of times in churches, this looks like this. Oh, bro, have you heard about Sheila and the things she did last week? Oh, my gosh, you know we need to be praying for Sheila. It's like, well, we probably need to be praying for you too, right? Isn't it weird how we invent creative ways to let sin get past us? And obscene talk from your mouth. Your language needs to be consistent in here, out of here, in home, out of home. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Do you hear that language? It's on the front and the back end here. He says you need to put them off. You need to put them away. The language that he's using here is the idea of taking off and putting off dirty garments. I shared last week how back in November I managed to, my number got called for COVID, right? Any of y'all ever been sick for like a few days where you got the hot flash and the sweats and the hot flash and the sweats and it just doesn't stop? And you're just like, I was stuffed up in my house, right? And after you're stuffed up in your house for a few days, you haven't really changed clothes because what's the point? At the end of being sick, there's only one thing you want to do and that's what? Get out of these clothes that I wouldn't even wear to Walmart at 1 a.m. 
and get a shower, right? That is the best feeling ever when you're done being sick. It's putting off these old things that have no value to me. They're gross. They're contaminated and putting on the new things. What he's saying is put them away. And he, then he drops this list of things we're supposed to put away. And this isn't some exhaustive list. It's what we would call representative list. These are lists of like, these are sins that probably are present in a lot of our lives. And the question we would ask, and I would ask myself, even as I approached here, okay, God, what do you need to add to this list for me that may not be on this list? We all struggle with them. But you know what the appropriate response isn't here? And we know that's not the appropriate response because it's not what Paul tells us to do. The way to overcome these sins and the way to quit sinning isn't by imposing more rules onto your life. Never has been, never will be. It's not about more rules. Because what Paul is saying is this. It's back to the, the, fan, the sport fan. If I'm a new person, if I'm a different person, you don't have to give me rules to not want these things. This isn't about rules. God doesn't want that for you. He wants transformation for you. Because what rules are, rules accompany therapy. All right? Now here's the thing. Therapy is a wonderful thing. I've been helped from it in my life. But there's a time and a place for rules. And I think anyone who's even had rules before know this. At the end of the day, a rule for rules sake doesn't really accomplish anything, does it? It doesn't. I've seen this more times than I would like to account. I was a student pastor for 15 years, right? I can't even tell you how many times we'd have the student come to, to youth group, right, or student ministry, and they are just straight line. Man, got great grades, you know, athletics, their own point. Like, everything about them is so squeaky clean. You're like, this kid doesn't do anything wrong. And then you meet the parent, and you're like, oh, now I know why. Because I'm pretty sure this, this child knows if they do anything wrong, they're going to be locked in their room in the basement for six years, right? Because the house runs completely on nothing but rules. And then that child, they graduate here. They go into college, military, or workforce. And what's the first thing they do? Rebel systematically against everything you thought you put in your life to help them. Because it was just rules. But then I've also had students come. They, 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 they have a similar countenance. And I'm like, I want to know why. And then I meet the parents. And I know why. Because the parent takes the time and says, listen, this is the way of life for you if you live under my roof. But not just is this the way of life. This is why it's the way of life. It starts here. Because I love you. And I want you to be more than what you can be if you raise yourself. So I'm going to put some things in your life, but I'm going to explain to you why these things are in your life. And when you fail, you don't run from me and cry. You come to me. I'll, we'll talk it out, but we're going to get up and keep moving forward. And you know what happens when that child goes off from the house? They reflect their parent perfectly, sometimes even better. Do I got an amen, parents? And see, that's what we see and we're, we're confronted with this reality. And Pastor Clay said this before, and we need to own it in this room today. And that is this, rules without relationship always equals rebellion. It just does. This is not about rules. This is about a relationship that transforms your very worship. And when you do that, when we reach that point, which is a daily thing, we don't lick this every day. When we reach this, then we can po be poised to see what's the next step. Look at verse 10. 
He gives us the positive now. And having put on the new self, it's that fresh pair of clothes, right? Put on the new self, which is being renewed in, what's that word? Knowledge. Hold on to that. After the image of its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, listen, right now, bring it in. I'm talking to believers. If you believe Christ is in all of you. And what that means very clearly is this. There's one way to achieve your next step. It's the same next step that's for everybody. And it's tucked into that word that he just read. How are we renewed? Through what? Knowledge. Now, this isn't saying, oh, if you know more, you're a better person. Absolutely, it's quite the opposite. See, that command, knowledge, is the command for every human who's ever been born, ever. It's for every human who will ever die, ever. It is all about knowing Jesus. This is how we know. In John 17, 3, it says this, and this is eternal life, which doesn't mean just heaven. It means fulfilling right now, hope-filled Right now. This is eternal life that they what? Know you. The one true God in Jesus Christ that you sent. You know where the journey for the believer begins? It begins with intimately knowing Jesus as your personal Savior. So today, if, if, there, if, you, bring, if you come here and you're like, I've been carrying all these things. I've been trying to put rules and stuff in place. Here's the thing I would just gently ask you. Gently. Do you know him? Because when you know him intimately, it changes you. But that's not just the command reserved for the people who don't know Jesus. There's only one command here. How are we being renewed? Through what? Knowledge. It's the same for us today. Psalm 119.11 says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. It's the same command. Which I love. Aren't you glad there are, there, that you don't have to do 15 different things to grow closer to your creator? The thing that saved you, knowing him, is the same thing that grows you, knowing him. It's the same thing that helps you grab the weeds and pull them up. How do we know where the weeds are? We go to the manual, right? We go to his love letter to us. We go to his, his gracious attempt to say, I want a relationship with you through his word, and we read it. We store it inside of us, and it helps us know the path, the way of right, the way of righteousness. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's the great thing. The more we get to know Jesus, right, the more you know him, the better you're going to worship him. And the better you worship him, the less you will sin. And the less that you sin, the better you can love the world around you. And the better you love the world around you, the more they want to see the God behind you. That's the whole purpose. Today, the great encouragement is this. Just don't put the cart before the horse. Let's look at our weeds and let's say, God, we want this. We want to be hope-filled people. So God, show me where you need to work in me to fill me with that hope. And I love to pray for all of us for that right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope that's in your son. I thank you that's not in anything else, that we don't have to go and work for anything else, that we don't have to figure it out. God, I thank you for the clear instruction to know you from the cradle to the grave. God, we look forward to the day that we get to join you in glory. But in the meantime, I pray that you will, through the faith in us, through your spirit, that you will help the weeds get pulled.
that you will make us more like you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the encouragement. God, may we be a church that puts you before everything. It's in Jesus' name, amen.